You are listening to African Perspectives with host Brother Oshi on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Take a 
to African Perspectives, where we review the issues of our day from an African worldview and African-centered perspective. This program is unapologetically African. It is a custom in the African tradition to ask elders for permission to speak, having been granted permission to our ancestors whose shoulders we stand on, to our elders whose shadows we walk in. I greet you, my dear brothers and sisters, in the language of one of the greatest civilizations on this planet, it gave the world the basic disciplines of knowledge of science, math, architecture, music, writing, law, religion, you name it, we did it. The Greeks called it Egypt, but they called themselves Kemet, and Kemet means land of the blacks. I greet you all in the Kemetic language, the word of peace, Hotep. It is truly an honor and a privilege to pour libation because we truly do stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. We're going to use water because water has no enemies. Water is the great cleanser, the great purifier. Everything on the planet that lives, it needs water from a tiny microscopic organism to a tall redwood tree. We pour water into the earth to invoke the spirits of our ancestors and we say the word ashe. It simply means so be it. So we pour this libation to God for all that God has done and for all that God will do. We sashay. We pour this libation to Mother Africa, birthplace of all humanity, everyone who has lived, everyone who will live in the future. We all have a common ancestral root in Africa. We pour this libation to the classical civilizations of Africa. I mentioned Kemet in the opening. Kemet was the height, the apex, the zenith of African high culture. But there were others as well, as Tymeri, Punt, and Nubia. So we poured us libation to the classical civilizations of Africa. We say Ashe. We poured us libation to the contemporary civilizations of Africa, 
of Ghana, Mali, Zangai, Benin, Great Zimbabwe. Civilizations that were flourishing and growing while Europe was in a medieval or dark age. The University of Sankare at Timbuktu, an outstanding educational institution. So he poured us libation to the contemporary civilizations of Africa. We say, Ashe? We poured us libation to the Ma'afa, the Holocaust of our enslavement, the Infakani, the great tragedy, uprooted out of Africa. Our brothers and sisters lay a carpet along the Atlantic Ocean. We're in North America, South America, Central America, and throughout the diaspora. So he poured us libation to our brothers and sisters who suffered the Ma'afa, the Infakani, the Holocaust of our enslavement, the great tragedy. We poured us libation in their honor and in their memory. We do not know their names, but because of them and their sacrifice, we are here. So we sashay. We poured us libation to those who fought against enslavement. If you ever heard me do a libation, you will know that we were not slaves. I repeat, we were not slaves. We were captives. What does a captive want to do? Get free. So we poured us libation to all those men and women who fought against enslavement. In fact, I maintain that some of us are more of a slave today than we were in our initial captivity because some of us are a slave to vice, to corruption, to drugs, sex, and violence. So we poured us libation to those who fought against enslavement. Gabriel Prosser, Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, Harriet Tutman. We always resisted. And we will always resist. So we poured us libation in the name and the honor of those men and women who fought against our captivity. We poured us libation to those unborn, those young men and women who will once again lead us back on the stage of human history as a free and proud and productive people. We sashay. We poured us libation to brotherhood and sisterhood together for the union of family. We need each other. We don't have good family life. There's a saying, conditions shape conduct and consciousness. The conditions in our community are bad. The conduct towards each other is not good. Because why? We lack consciousness. And consciousness is more than just awareness. Consciousness is a deeper understanding of who you are historically, who you are culturally. So once we begin to understand the importance of brotherhood and sisterhood together for the union of family. Brothers and sisters, let us all say, Ashe, Ashe. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. Good morning, African world. You are listening to African Perspectives here on the Motherland Media Network. This call may be recorded or transcribed. Stop interrupting me. (laughs) On on Time for the Awakening and, of course, Black Talk Radio Network. (laughs) And I'm your host, Baba Oshi, (laughs) Hotel Family. Hope everything is well with you today. Hope you're going to have a good day today. Hope you had a good day yesterday and an even better day tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is African Perspectives. We hear every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 11 a.m.
to 1 p.m. 10 to 12 Central, 9 to 11 Mountain, or 8 to 10 Pacific, any other time around the world. But if you cannot listen to this program live, you can go to our archives at timeforanawakening.com. At the top of the page, you'll see podcasts. Click on that, and the drop-down, you'll see African Perspectives. Click on that, and there will be programs in, that are dated and titled, thanks to my good brother and brother Kwaku. Yeah, brother Kwaku stopped by, man, and helped me get this stuff together. So, yes, yeah, man, I appreciate it. Other programming we have here on Time for an Awakening on um, Tuesdays, Black Reality Think Tank will be returning uh, in honor of Dr. William Rogers. And... Um, be hosted by Alfonso Watkins. Look, looking forward to that. I'm trying to get him on the program, give him a call, so we can talk about some of the things he's going to be talking about on Black Reality Think Tank. On Fridays, if it's Friday and it's 8 p.m. Eastern, brothers and sisters, it's time for an awakening with Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. On Saturdays from 7 to 9 p.m., the Sankofa Elders Council, Dr. James, is hosting. And then on Sunday at 7 p.m. once again, time for an awakening with Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. And, of course, the number to call is 215-490-9832, 215-490-9832. If you want the programming that I just mentioned uh, for this program, uh, you can, whatever search engine you use, you know, Firefox, Google, you know, but time for an awakening, Black Talk Radio Network, and B.B. Toomey, you can put that in there, put in Baba. Oshi.net. B-A-B-A-O-S-H-I dot net. Baba Oshi.net. And there will be programs that are dated and titled. We usually uh, have announcements and we're going to have them uh, definitely on Friday, but to kind of forego them today because I, I have two pieces that I want to play in there. You know, they're some length and I want to have discussions with you, my brothers and sisters. Today we're going to talk about the birth dates of um, MLK. We're going to finish up with that. MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., and Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad Ali was special to me, man. So I, I want to have the amount of time that I feel I need to talk to you about it. And of course, we want to end on time. It's important that we end on time. And uh, so, uh, but we will do the Inya Sassim. The Inya Sassim. January 17th, which was Muhammad Ali's birthday, the 17th. I believe it's better to die in battle rather than hold aloft a very revolutionary and a very pure banner and do nothing. Hugo Chavez. Of course, if you don't know who Hugo Chavez, he was the president of Venezuela. President of Venezuela, man, tough man. Yep, could not be pushed around. Yeah, Hugo Chavez, and they're still trying to take Venezuela, the United States, and others. So, hold tight. War is about bloodshed, and any good warrior firmly committed to the liberation of his or her people knows that death is nothing less than an opportunity seized in an effort to remove the threat to his or her people's ability to, <clears throat> excuse me, Her ability to be themselves. War is not a sandbox for the vainglorious cowards in need of attention for unearned glory. It is not a platform 
upon which one makes grandiose declarations about freedom, revolutionary and revolution and martyrdom. It is the place where one works to reach these ideas. So warriors have faith in what you do now, here and now, right now, at this very moment, not in what you have done or intend to do. Now that we are winning and that there is no room for doubt, for doubt drains. Advance, brothers and sisters. Never accept your current position as a resting place. Never stop until you have become your ancestors in all their glory, goodness, and splendor, and have returned the African reality to power. And remember, power is the ability to define reality. Power ain't money. Power ain't politics. Power ain't voting. Power is not information or education. Power ain't none of that. Power is the ability to define reality. And if we define reality and we shape it in our image and in our interest, we have power. Affirm, I do not make excuses. Affirm, I do not make excuses. January 18th. The psychopath is an individual who consistently is in conflict with other persons or groups is unable to experience guilt, is completely selfish and callous, and has a total disregard for the rights of others. Dr. Bobby Wright. Man, love Bobby Wright. The voices, and that's from the Psychopathic Racial Personality. If you have a bookstore, or get a bookstore please get that book, small book, but it's powerful. The voices they hear in their heads are not aliens, demons, or the devil. There is nothing strange or foreboding about those who speak to their minds from the inside. They are their ancestors instructing and prodding them in their way. Every people hear their ancestors urging them to be themselves. Every people receive some degree of internal guidance about being what they have always been. An external socialization is never enough to cause individuals to feel compelled to carry forth their legacy, whatever it may be. And the European legacy is a hunger for victims in the most depraved, sadistic of ways. Their record is incontestable. Insanity courses through their veins. Death gives them life, unlike others who are given life through life. They search for life, emotional content, through psychic shock. The greatest, the greatest rush comes through the giving and receiving of trauma. And the greatest trauma is death. This is why they are master sadistics and born killers. Sometimes because we are being socialized in the insanity of their ancestors and have become distanced from the wisdom and urgings of our own, we hear their ancestors' voices and mistakes from our from ours, the voices and the mistake from ours. Affirm, I do not listen to the voices of psychopaths. Affirm, I do not listen to the voices of psychopaths. In Yah Sassim of daily revolutionary thought. Yeah, brothers and sisters, I tell you, I, I want to do this. Because uh, these are... Brother Paul sent me this. Love Brother Paul. Hope Brother Paul is listening. I thank him. You know, 
Can't wait to meet him. Can't wait to plan the trip. Me, my, you know, probably Brother Kwaku, probably Brother Herb, maybe more. Take a little contingent, go across the, go across the, uh, <clears throat> across the pond, as we say, and break bread and introduce ourselves to the brothers and sisters in the UK. You know, can't wait to do that. That's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. You know, we're going to talk about MLK, finish him up this morning, and um, Muhammad Ali. Yesterday is his birthday, and uh, I love Muhammad Ali. As a kid, you know, uh, growing up in your neighborhood and I was a little high yellow boy with curly hair, so you know they messed with me. You know, and I had a paper route, me and my brother, and them cats jumped us. You know, <laughs> jumped us even at the paper station before we were sorting papers out. Got our papers in the wagon, we going down about, I don't know, maybe half a mile to where our route was. And couldn't even get there. We fighting, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then my brother, he, he fought from one school all the way to the house, which was, you know, on we lived on 19th Street, and 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 the school was about we lived on 1500. We lived 1500, and the school was seven blocks. Thought it was more, you know. When you think about your childhood, everything seems bigger because you're smaller. You know, everything's more distance because you're smaller. So I thought that was a mile away, you know, and. um so we, me and him talked. We said, hey, man, we got to defend ourselves. So, so we ordered these boxing books, man. One book came. It was so damn old. The papers were yellow. And it was, it was like John L. Sullivan, you know. <laughs> and me and him, we were practicing. So we got a, a more, uh, <laughs> more modern boxing book. And we practiced on jabs and slipping punches and so forth. And my mother bought us some boxing gloves. And uh, me and him went to the uh, the local Salvation Army where the, where the gym was in, in the locker room. Because the locker room wasn't hardly used. You know, the shower wasn't hardly used. So we went in there, threw the gloves down. Who want to thump? Let's go. Who want to thump? You know. <laughs> yeah, then he he got into the golden gloves you know, then the following year I got into the Golden Gloves. I, I was fortunate enough to win state that year, and um, fought. I was fourteen and fourteen and two. Didn't have a lot of fights, and I almost made one of my losses was the AAU championship in in Ottawa, Illinois. I could have gone to the nationals. <laughs> oh well, but it was a great experience, and because of boxing. You know, I, f- I love Muhammad Ali. I love Muhammad Ali even back when he wasn't in the nation, when he was rhyming. I don't remember him in 1960. I'd have to be honest. I didn't pay attention to the uh, Rome Olympics in 1960. But after that, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, Followed him seriously. Had bought boxing books, and Ring Magazine, Boxing Illustrated, or something like that. You know, 
I mean, I've read about great champions of the past and, you know, came in like, I don't know, like a little boxing historian to a, to a degree. And still, still love it. The sweet science, as they called it. But him, something more about him is just a boxer. And he was a boxer. He wasn't a fighter. He was a boxer. You know, slip and move, in and out, tie you up. But he took a lot of punishment family at the end. That fight with Larry Holmes. I remember him when he got into the ring. He looked good. He had taken some medication or something to, you know, trim it down. Because first he was getting in, he was, you know, you know out, looking out of shape. And he looked, he looked good. But, boy, he was, that was the worst. And one of his worst beatings. Prior to that, they couldn't touch him. I remember, you know, listening to the first Sonny Liston fight on the radio and then going to watch it at the theater. You know, you know, you had closed circuit. I, I'm quite sure I probably couldn't afford it. I know he couldn't afford it. Then got kind of money. It might have been ten dollars. I couldn't afford it. You know, but um, they had the actual fight, and then later they would show. You know, sometime later they would show uh, fights, and, and that was one of them I went to see. And uh, he w- became champion, time youngest champion. And uh, there is a uh, movie. I can't remember. The, I can't remember the name of it with uh, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and of course, El Hodge, Malik El Shabazz. Malcolm X in a hotel room in Miami. It actually happened. It is historic. You know. But Muhammad Ali, because he used to talk smack, you know. He said he got it from Gorgeous George the wrestler. I, I remember Gorgeous George. I remember wrestling coming on TV and of course wrestling is choreographed. In fact, you got to be a member of the Actors Guild to become a wrestler. It's choreographed. And so, you know, they out there, you know, you do it. When I do this, you do that, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we'll talk more about Muhammad Ali and, and my affection, my love, and, my, and admiration for him. I, you know, when he, when he did pass, I was down at EDI in New Orleans, and my dear friend, she called me and told me that Muhammad Ali had passed, and and then from where I was in New Orleans, because I was just starting the program. In fact, I was on a Friday. And so I think by Tuesday, uh, I was on my way back to back home here to Atlanta to go to the service, I believe it was on a Thursday, you know, in Louisville. And you had to get tickets. My good friend, Mary, she got me a ticket. You know, I was kind of back farther, but I didn't, I didn't care. I was in the place, you know. Yeah, Muhammad Ali. Uh, MLK. We talked about MLK. We had, uh, I got a piece here I'm going to play. Brother, once again, Brother Paul. I can't say enough about that brother, man. There's no doubt about it, man, that there is one day you're going to be. Okay, that's Dr. King, remembering Dr. King. That's. what we're going to play because we're going to do Muhammad Ali in the second half of the program.
and this this particular piece is a little lengthy, but um, I'm quite sure, and I, I even looked on Black Agenda Report, and Jack Black Agenda Report, Glenn Ford, he passed a couple years ago, and he always had good information. I used to take a lot of stuff from Black Agenda Report and play it and so forth. A lot of good stuff. You know, they were socialists. And of course, you know, this site doesn't like socialism. <laughs> and he would, oh man, they would be scathing on, on the Democrats and on the Republicans and everybody else, you know. So I love Black Agenda Report. I love Glenn Ford. Love to hear his voice. Good brother. I remember um, some other things that he had uh, going on in, on black radio. So this is a piece remembering the real Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 2023. Okay. Yeah, check this out. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with. And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean, 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality. And as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore, it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading.
Well, I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It uh, didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we are getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. Dr. King spoke the truth and fought for the truth. So it's no surprise that in the years and decades following his assassination, the white media has led a relentless effort to try to redefine King, in fact, to try to reinvent him. Now, when you hear Dr. King speak these words, it becomes a lot more clear why the white media was so desirous to try to manufacture a new, sanitized, made-for-suburban-audiences version of Dr. King that a lot of black people would try to distance themselves from. That was the goal of doing it. For so long, a lot of black people had dismissed Dr. King or tried to tell us to distance ourselves from him because they thought he didn't want to challenge white power when the reality was most of us had been taught a false version of Dr. King. Well, I would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Now, of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Notice that Dr. King said full citizenship for the Negro. Notice that he wasn't talking any black and brown. He wasn't saying anything about alliances. He was speaking specifically about the concerns and interests of black people because to otherwise decide that everybody should be included in his statement would be the same as saying that everybody's concerns were equally pressing and equally important and black people's concerns were no more pressing and no more important than anyone else's. And that would not have been the truth. Most black people only know one or two sentences from one speech Dr. King gave, and the white media tells us that's all there was to the man. I want you to understand that was not the case. If Dr. King had been this non-threatening, let's-all-hold-hands kind of guy, would they have demonized him so much? Would both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations have allowed their archenemy, J. Edgar Hoover, to spy on him? Would they have killed him if he was some mamby-pamby, weak accommodationist for white supremacy? White supremacy was taking out anyone who was a serious threat to them. Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Fred Hampton. Dr. King didn't say, we're coming to talk about our check. He didn't say, hopefully they'll do the right thing about that check. He said, we're coming to get our check. That's not a request. Dr. King understood power is not given, it's taken. Do you truly believe that the same FBI that spied on Dr. King, that defamed the man, spread all sorts of lies and innuendo about the guy and engineered his death for all we know, wasn't also listening to him saying these words?
Do you think the same FBI that had placed him under surveillance and had listening devices all over the man was unaware that he was talking like this? Well, there was no doubt about the hypocrisy of uh, large segments of the nation on the whole question of, of racial equality. I think the best example is that many of the senators from the North and the West and congressmen generally who voted for civil rights legislation in 64 and even 65 with the voting rights bill refused last year to vote for civil rights legislation because it dealt with an issue applicable to the North, the whole housing question. And uh, this, it seems to me, was the greatest expression of the hypocrisy of uh, many of our citizens and many of the senators and congressmen of the North. So the white media understood they had to reinvent Dr. King, but their version would be a kumbaya peacemaker who was totally devoted to nonviolence to a suicidal degree. And then they would tell all the rest of us, uh, that's your Dr. King, and uh, you guys should walk in his footsteps, don't you know? All that reparations and revolution stuff simply wouldn't be mentioned. And this has been the fraudulent version of Dr. King that the white media has pushed ever since his assassination. Malcolm X said it best, with skillful manipulation of their media, they can make the perpetrator look like the victim and the victims look like the perpetrator. What they did with Dr. King was a variation on the same idea. By reducing the man down to just a couple of sentences taken from one speech out of context and repeating that nonstop, they systematically ignored everything else he had said. And by doing so, they took someone who was threatening white power and demanding things for his people and presented him as someone who simply prized nonviolence above all other things, as if that was the only thing he cared about. Nonviolence. He cared about that more than anything, including justice. And since most people get all their information from the white media, they got away with this for a while. All they had to do was bring on some black flunkies and token Negroes who wouldn't challenge their narrative, wouldn't challenge their false version of Dr. King. And this is all we have seen and heard for the last 50 plus years. But now a resurgence of the true Dr. King is coming back to the fore, pushed by the black media. We're giving you the other 99% of what Dr. King said, all the stuff the white media didn't want you to hear. A popular lie by omission from the white right is, how would Dr. King feel if he saw the anti-police violence riots, buddy? Well, he would react the same way he did when he saw them in his day. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segment a white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. He said that riots were the language of the unheard.
Now, your white leftist media isn't going to tell you that because they have the same editorial bosses and the same owners in many cases as the white right media. And in a lot of instances, you have people who claim to be from the white left who are sleeping with and even married to people whose ideology they claim to oppose. Take Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski for one example, or Democratic strategist James Carville and his wife, Republican strategist Mary Madeline for another. Both sides of the white supremacist political spectrum are rigged. One is the mouthpiece for white power, and the other is controlled opposition, meant to keep you and me in check, to lecture us about what we should and should not do, and to get us to sit on our hands waiting for them to do what we told them to do. Well, Dr. King didn't play those games. He didn't pretend as if we had any pals in the white media because he knew better. White power didn't have the ability to discredit or destroy Dr. King, so instead they've been fighting a 50-year-long effort to co-opt him, to manufacture their own phony, watered-down, completely false imitation of King, not based on what the man actually stood and fought for and gave his life for, but based on a few sentences from one speech that he gave that they felt would be useful to their ends. This is typical white supremacy. They take an entire history book, rip out 95% of the pages, heavily redact whatever is left, and then hand it to you and me and say, here, you got the whole story. The I have a dream speech is not necessarily a bad thing, but it was an aspirational statement by Dr. King. Certainly not the end all and be all, but that's what the white media made of it. The people who defamed and attacked Dr. King in life would now try to make themselves the sole arbiters of his legacy. Now, one of the ways that they have been stymied is that Dr. King copyrighted his speeches. You can't use them without the estate's permission. This is why you haven't seen but one or two Dr. King movies, because Hollywood would love to try to put up some twisted bit of propaganda that was meant to smear the man. The white media were the enemies of Dr. King, but they know that attacking him wouldn't work, so instead they decided to pretend to honor the man. All the while, they were deviously crafting a counterfeit mockery of him. A cardboard cutout who only wanted to be friends with the very white supremacists that he was fighting against. And that's who all of these white media companies and corporations and the government and their Negro bootlicks and hangers-on have told you and I was the real Dr. King. All the talk about coming to get our check was gone. All the times he mentioned revolution and destroying militarism, materialism, and racism was gone. Now the white media had made up their own fraudulent duplicate of King, one they could plaster all over the place and tell us that we should want to be like this guy, talking about kids playing together on the playground. In reality, they were infantilizing the minds of the masses. It does no good to wish for children to play together unless you're willing to be honest about why they can't play together in the first place. Yes, Dr. King was a man of the cloth, he certainly was a pastor, but he walked in the tradition of a moral leader, convicting the guilty of their sins, starting with this sick white supremacist country. There has never been a single, solid, determined commitment of large segments of white America on the whole question of racial equality. Uh, I think we have to see that vacillation has always existed, ambivalence has always existed, and this to me is the so-called white backlash. It's merely 
a new name for an old phenomenon. I see the white backlash as a continuation of the same ambivalence and vacillation of white America on the whole question of racial justice that has existed uh, since the founding of our nation. The white media were among the guilty, so they've led the charge to pervert and derange King's message by excising and eliminating the hard truths that he told and only showing us the most innocuous, most... least offensive to white power parts of what he had said. To reduce Dr. King down to nothing more than his I have a dream speech is like talking about God's love and forgiveness in the Bible without mentioning his judgment or wrath. The white media pushed a narrative that made it where Dr. King could be whatever white power wanted him to be, but the one thing he would not be is confrontational to white power. He would be suffering in silence, waiting loyally for the day when these white supremacists would finally discover the love of Jesus, etc. They like that Dr. King because he doesn't threaten them. The real Dr. King was all about bringing white power down. And I know that especially for those people who are new to spaces like this, this might be quite a shock to you, might be hard to accept. But again, if Dr. King was really so innocuous, if he really was so unthreatening to white power... Why did they kill him? Those and many of the values of uh, so-called white middle-class society are values uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, re-evaluated, and in a real sense, they need to be changed. So I think the young people in the Negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society. In other words, they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture uh, of our society where values are concerned. And with this, I would agree with. So in the quest for integration, I think we can offer our whole nation something because there are three evils in our nation. It's not only racism, but economic exploitation of poverty would be one, and then militarism. And I think in a sense, and in a very real sense, these three are tied inextricably together, and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other. There were plenty of black preachers who had followings, many of whom who marched for civil rights, but very few who said that the entire American social order had to be demolished and rebuilt from the ground up, along lines of justice this time. Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. But a lot of people forget what it was that he was in Memphis to do. He was fighting so that the sanitation workers could get more money. He wasn't there talking about, well, we need to have playgrounds where all the kids can play together. He was there talking about money. We don't just honor the dream. We honor everything that Dr. King stood for. We embrace his message in its totality, not just the one or two highly edited snippets that the white media lies to us and claims were his entire message. Shortly before he was assassinated, Dr. King said that the next phase of the struggle was going to be what he called the poor people's revolution. In the years leading up to his murder, he had been saying that white society was only willing to integrate because integration didn't cost them anything. It didn't require them to give up anything. It certainly didn't require a restoration to black people of the generational wealth that we've had stolen from us. Dr. King made it clear that wasn't good enough. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It uh, didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything 
uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we are getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something. That there could be no justice without what he counted as billions of dollars, and we today reckon to be in the tens of trillions of dollars in reparations to the former American slaves who built this country. All along, Dr. King had been laying the groundwork for what the true objective had been the entire time. The enemy certainly understood that. He had made the case that he and the other true soldiers for justice had the moral high ground. Next, he would begin a movement to focus solely on the material resources that the black people in this country have been deprived of every day we've been here. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. The enemy could see that. They surveilled and bugged Dr. King and his friends five ways from Sunday to keep tabs on everything that he was saying. They knew where this was going. In essence, Dr. King's fight was a fight for resources. He understood what the problem was, and his enemies understood that too. The poor will not have justice nor peace until they are no longer poor. The best way to honor Dr. King is to remind people of his true message, who he truly was. That's why I do these Holy Day commemorations, to remind people of what our grandmaster teachers, warriors, scholars, and freedom fighters stood for. White supremacists laughed when Khalid Muhammad said, we demand reparations. People thought it an impossibility when Dr. King said, we're coming to get our check. Well, take a look at Fox News and the rest of the white right-wing hate media sphere today. Look at your so-called white liberal allies at MSNBC and CNN. Do you see anyone laughing anymore? The seeds that Dr. King and others had planted are beginning to bear fruit. CNN and MSNBC, they won't even mention reparations. So you have the white right attacking reparations openly and directly, and the white left pretending that no such movement exists. This way, there's only one narrative that the people see. The bad guys don't know whether to spit or go blind. We celebrate Dr. King on the day of his birth. White power cynically set it up so that the government would claim to observe his death, but only on a Monday. That's the racist way of misusing the man's birthday as an excuse to give themselves another day off. Learn to recognize when your enemy is mocking you. Well, around here, we're built differently. We don't ask for a day. We take a day. We honor our heroes because they stood up for us. You see, white power has to invent their heroes because they don't have any. Superman, Batman, Luke Skywalker, these are all artificial heroes because white power has no heroes. All they've got are slave owners, genocidal warmongers, and savage oligarchs. Their heroes are the world's villains. Well, we don't have that problem. We've got genuine heroes in the real world. But understand that the system our heroes fought to bring down will never honor them. And we don't want nor need them to. 
Look what they did with Dr. King. There was no honor going on. They were trying to co-opt him. You would never expect your neighbor to cherish your father or your mother or your siblings as much as you do. So why would you expect the racist down at City Hall to do so? Dr. King wanted his people to have self-determination, to be able to live their lives in peace and decide for themselves what to do with their lives. Ultimately, that means the people, black people, must be empowered. There's no other way. And a big part of self-determination is we determine what is important to us. What is it that we value? What is it that we honor? What is it that we celebrate? Well, you should never celebrate anything or anyone who does not honor you. As Khalid Muhammad said, that is mental genocide. Recently, the white media has realized that the real Dr. King has come back from the grave and all the things he said 55 plus years ago that scared the hell out of them are being heard once more. The truth didn't stay buried. It came back with a vengeance. So they're trying to slither away from Dr. King ever so subtly. Their phony, spineless imitation of King is no longer being accepted. It's being rejected openly. Too many people are demanding that whenever Dr. King's name is mentioned, that his true words be spoken. Enough of the I have a dream speech. Let's talk about that check. Because if his true words are spoken, then people will begin demanding that his true dream be realized. Not that little boys and girls sit on a playground making nice but that the black victims of this nation's white supremacy have the power and influence they require to bring down the strongholds of anti-black racism and to raise up a fortress of black empowerment, a fortress of justice. Now there's a dream worth turning into reality. Glenn Ford, Black Agenda Report. We're going to take a break in a minute. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about Muhammad Ali, also coming to you from a piece from Black Agenda Report, outstanding. You must admit, I know you probably heard many things on Dr. King, and of course what he was stating was most correct, how he has been literally whitewashed, how they used him uh, as a symbol of kumbaya. But Dr. King was more than that much more than that and he loved us he loved his people now you see because of the whitewashing he loved all people <laughs> yeah yeah so we're going to take a break we're going to do that now so when we come back from the break we'll have the rest of the time to play a couple of pieces I'm going to play um, one of the pieces is um just some sayings of, of uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, and then um, the other will be um, a piece, once again, from Black Agenda Report on Muhammad Ali. And then, of course, your comments, your questions, your concerns. And so we'll take those. Brothers and sisters, you're listening to African Perspectives here on the Motherland Media Network, on timeforanawakening.com and blacktalkradionetwork.com. You stay with us. We'll be right back. You are listening to African Perspectives with host Brother Oshi on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com.
Just watch. Hey, hey, hey. 
listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. Welcome back, brothers and sisters. Once again, you're listening to African Perspectives. I think that song was appropriate for Muhammad Ali. You know, <laughs> that is funky, ain't it? I love it. Yeah, Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk. Yeah, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> what a character, man. What a man. Man, I loved him. I loved him when he was calling, yeah, he starts some jive, I'm going to make it five, you know. <laughs> and, and, and and most often when he talked about what Ronnie's going to do it in, he did it, you know. But then when he joined the Nation of Islam and he said the things he said to Caucasians, to white folks, to Europeans, to Urugu, I really fell in love then. The courage, the tenacity, the braveness. Man. And like all who, when he was stripped of his title, I remember his last fight. I was playing the uh, play for the Salvation Army basketball team. We were at the, another boys and girls club, and we had just finished the fight. I mean, fight. We had just finished the game, and on that night, they had Muhammad Ali's fight before he went out of a, against Zora Foley. And he knocked him out. And then after that, Muhammad Ali was stripped of his title for three years. Three years. Prime years. You know? Man, I tell you. And of course, he came back and fought Jerry Quarry. But we're going to play some good stuff for you here that. Um, you know, you'll get a good understanding of the real Muhammad Ali. You know, I hate what happened to him t- at the end of his life. I hate some of the pounds he took. But one of the highlights of my life, and I want to thank my friend. She, uh, we went to Muhammad Ali, went to Louisville, to Muhammad Ali Center. And, uh, so I had to take my shoes off to shadow box in this thing, you know, you could do some shadow. I'm up there prancing and dancing. And she runs in and says, Oh she, oh she, come here, hurry up. So I gather my shoes and stuff like that, and there was Muhammad Ali. I hugged and kissed him, told him I loved him. Highlight of my life. You know, my children, my daughters being born, of course. But man, the opportunity to meet I met Muhammad Ali three times in Milwaukee. The, the Nation of Lies, Mosque number three, of course, you know, uh, Muhammad's mosques are named in a, in a numerical succession. Not mosque number one is in Detroit. Number two is in Chicago. Number three is in Milwaukee. And many others. Mosque number seven in New York as they continue to establish. And that's mosque number 15 here in Atlanta. You know. And so he's by Muhammad's mosque number three, which is now King Drive, ironically, this King Drive was then Third Street, and I saw him on the street, you know, touched him and so forth. The other time was at the Indiana Black Expo. I mentioned this expo a number of times because of its, its significance to me and the people who were there: Tupac, Khalid Muhammad, Anthony Browder, the people who were there. You know, when Greg Kamathi Carr and them cats were still in in uh, doctoral school at, at um, Temple University. They call themselves the New Jack Scholars. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, all these people were there. It was just fantastic. So he, in fact, the boxing program was named the Muhammad Ali boxing program that they had at the um, Indiana Black Expo. On the card, see, I, but I said I boxed, right? And so one of the persons who had some fighters there from Milwaukee, you know, Brother Al, he, he's a little heavy, man. So he asked me <laughs> if I would help him out, man, and work the corner, you know, because you got to get up and down. You know, got to get up and down. So two fighters, I worked the corner for him. But on the card was Money Mayweather. That's right. Yeah, he was an amateur at the time. Money way, money, money Mayweather. Yeah. And then um, see Muhammad Ali. Yeah, let me play this piece. This is Muhammad Ali with some sayings and and um, he was very profound. It's too bad he was silenced towards the end of his life. You know, he, and once again, too, you know, he's just like Dr. King. They vilify you. They Man, they castigate your ass. And then once you're dead, oh, he's a great man. Oh, man. You know, same with Muhammad Ali. They hated him. Hated Muhammad Ali. You know, but once he was silent and, yeah, he became a beloved figure. No. So I'm going to play this particular piece, family, and uh, hope that you enjoy it. All I represent in my confidence. I am the greatest. I cannot lose. I'm pretty. And every man believes he's the greatest. Every man will like to be the greatest. Many want to say this, but they fear it. And they see this in myself, and some hate me for it, and some love me so. Do you have a bodyguard? No, you don't. I have one bodyguard. He has no eyes, though he sees. He has no ears, though he hears. He remembers everything with the aid of mind and memory. When he wishes to create a thing, he just orders it to be and it comes into existence. That's God, Allah. He's my bodyguard. He's your bodyguard. He's the supreme. What would you like people to think about you when you've gone? I'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love. He took one tablespoon of patience, one teaspoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith, and he stirred it up well. Then he spread it over a span of a lifetime, and he served it to each and every deserving person he met. I studied life, I studied people, and I'm educated on this. But when it comes to reading and writing, I'm not, I may be illiterate in that. But when it comes to common sense, when it comes to feelings, when it comes to love, compassion, heart for people, then I, I'm rich. Yeah. I wrote something once that says, where is man's wealth? His wealth is in his knowledge. For if his wealth was in the bank and not in his knowledge, then he don't possess it because it's in the bank. You know what I'm saying? My wealth is in my knowledge. I'm a spokesman for my people, and I'm going to represent my people. And I don't want to be a bad representative. I can't be blind because the blind lead the blind. They all fall in the ditch. You know, I want to say something right here. You all might, this might make you all think. Life is not really long. Let's say the average person, 30 years old. If you're 30 years old, you are not but about seven years old. How can I prove it? Add up all the seven, eight, nine hours you slept for 30 years. 
out of 30 years, out of all the nights, last night when you went to bed and woke up this morning, you don't remember a thing. You've been unconscious for about eight years. If you're 30 years old, you slept about eight years. Okay. How much traveling have you done in 30 years? From the television station to home, to another country, to another city, to school, to church. You've probably traveled two years your life or spent just getting back and forth to where you're going. So there's eight years of sleeping, two years of traveling. There's 30 years out of your life before you accomplish anything. How long do you sit in school? In America, we stay in school from the first grade to 12th grade. Six hours a day for 12 years, break it down. You sit in the classroom for three years without leaving. Okay, two years of traveling, eight years of sleeping, three years of school. How many movies have you went to? How many wrestling matches? How much entertainment? How many movies, theaters, live plays, baseball games? Probably two years of entertainment. So by the time a man, you older people know him, bear witness what I'm saying, by the time you have children, by the time you have uh, made a way for your children, by the time you've paid for your home, you're pushing 60 years old. So life is real short. See, Ali, that's the only thing about Ali. When you were watching Ali get beaten up as an old man, even that was a young kid, he's not going to quit. you got to kill him. He won't quit. Even he's, he was getting beat up every round, getting kicked out of my lab at home. And said, champ, no, come on, let me out, come on out. They wouldn't stop. He had to be, He would have to stay up there and just take the beating like a man. He, just, he wouldn't quit. In a way, I respect the guy like that so much. I have so much admiration for a guy like that so much, but it's just not right to do you that way as a human being. This day is over. I'll come back and fight another day else. You got me, you know. And listen, um, I always like to think I'm a bad, but I don't give a, but um. That's a part of Ali. That's, that's where he overshines me because I can't understand a man that's willing to just really die for this. You know, and I talked to but he, he, the real the, Why does it make you emotional? Is it talking about him or the relation to you? Um, me. Me. Um, Ali's a giant. There's no way other fighters can match him. He'll die for this shit. He'll die. I'm not going to die for this. Everybody has a purpose in life. Everybody has a destiny, and the knowledge of that destiny enables one to fulfill it. See, so everything was put here for purpose. Ants, buzzards, trees, and it's the knowing of that purpose that enables every man to fulfill it. And uh, and life begins when a person realizes his purpose in life. Very few people uh, know how to go about finding what's the best purpose in their life that they should try to fulfill. And mine was just to be the world heavyweight champion. And then also not only being the champion, but keeping my dignity, my pride, my manhood, not Uncle Tom, as, as they say, selling out my people just for the white man's dollar. So this is my purpose, to go down as the one, the first one just about to go all out and all the way and being clean with the sport and, and not representing nothing like tobacco and whiskey and various commercials and stand with my people and representing everybody at the same time, not disowning my own, marrying my own kind and, and socializing with my own kind. But I belong to the world as far as being the champion, but I let it be known that I am black and I will always be black and with black, even if I mean give up all the money and everything that I can be offered from boxing. 
my head got big and I started thinking it was my training camp and my boxing ability that kept me where I was at and God punished me and he gave me a good whooping. He broke my jaw in the second fight and he got me whooped and knocked down in the Frazier fight and I realized I wasn't that great after all. So I had to get not only together physically but spiritually. For this fight I prayed every day for five days, five times a day for the past uh, uh, four months and everything is perfect. And if Allah's with me, it ain't no way no man can win. No way. Because I'm representing God. I'm representing the freedom of black people in America. I want to be the one black man who stands up and look at white people and tell the truth. Who don't sell them out. Who don't uncle dumb. Who don't promote cigarettes. Don't promote whiskey. Take his fame to uplift his little brother in the ghetto. How do we treat each other? How do we help each other? So... I'm going to dedicate my life to using my name and popularity, helping charities, helping people, uniting people, bring people bumming each other because of religious beliefs. We need somebody in the world to help make peace. So when I die, if there's a heaven, I want to see it. Because we live how long? 80 years? The odds are everybody in this room, some of you are going to be dead 20 years from now. Some of you are going to be dead 50 years from now. Some are going to be dead 30, and some are going to be dead 60, 70 years ago. We're all going to die soon. And if you live to be, say, 125 years old, which we don't do, right? Let's say we live to be 250, and you can have sex for 145 of those years. You're going to come to end after that. So we don't have it about 80 years on earth. This is a test to see where will we spend our life in heaven and hell. This is not the life now. Your real self is inside you. Your body gets old. Some of you go to look at the fridge, look old. you don't have no teeth. Your hair is leaving you. Your bodies get tired. But your soul and your spirit never die. That's going to live forever. So your body is just housing your soul and spirit. So God is testing us on how we treat each other, how we live, to see where our real home be in heaven. So this physical stuff don't last for so long. So my car, this building is going to be here when the man who built it dead. There have been many kings and queens of England. They're all dead. After this one is gone, another one will come. So we don't stay here. We're just trustees. We don't own nothing. So what am I saying? The most important thing about life is what's going to happen when you die. The great Muhammad Ali, a man who I admire and respect and love, the great Muhammad Ali. Yeah, I tell you, uh, when he was early on in his career on fire, he became the most recognized human being on the planet, more so than any dignitary, any so-called king or queen, any person who was in uh, the, the top person of the society, the prime minister or whatever, the president, Muhammad Ali. And, it, you know, it was interesting when Muhammad Ali was talking to a little boy who had cancer you know, I don't know if you remember that. Very emotional, bring tears to your eyes. You know, when he told him that, I want to go to heaven. You know, and 
And then that guy says, you know, I met Muhammad Ali. I met Muhammad Ali. Yep. So we got a good one here, uh, once again, sent by Brother Paul. So I'm going to get that in because it's a little longer. And um, it's, um, <clears throat> once again, what Black Agenda Report, Brother Glenn Ford, who died uh, in in 21, 2021, and who who has a legacy, man. Glenn Ford was a tough brother, who has a legacy. And um, so, I'm going to play this particular piece, remembering Muhammad Ali. Thank you, Brother Paul. And thank you, Glenn Ford, Black Agenda Report. As our Holy Days commemorations continue, today we remember the life and legacy of a man who was truly great. You could literally say the greatest of all time. Now, you all know I'm no sports fan, but I am a fan of any black person who stands on their own two feet. And few stood taller than Muhammad Ali. We remember him not just for what he did, but also what his life meant. He used that life to make a statement. Everybody claims that their life stands for something, but Ali's was one of the very few who nobody had to tell you what his life stood for. His story was the story of our people writ small. He came to prominence as Cassius Clay. In a way, that name was fitting. Cassius was also the name of a Roman who helped to mastermind the overthrow of the established power of his day. And this Cassius would be no less subversive. But unlike the Cassius of Rome, Ali would be taking on a far stronger empire. And worse, he would be doing it alone. Now, in the beginning, Muhammad Ali didn't have much controversy because he hadn't made much waves. There was, of course, the gold medal that he won in the 1960 Olympics. But it wasn't until he became a professional fighter and started speaking his mind that there came problems particularly when Muhammad Ali turned to Islam. But it was also more than that. Muhammad Ali had already had a taste of what it meant to have a platform. And now that the platform had grown with his foray into professional boxing, he decided he would speak his own mind on his own terms. After Ali had won the World Heavyweight Championship, the U.S. government decided that would be a good time to try to draft him into the Vietnam War. As everyone knows, Muhammad Ali famously refused, but he was no draft dodger. Rush Limbaugh, Donald Trump, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, these were draft dodgers. They used lies or their family connections to get out of going to Vietnam. Muhammad Ali, of course, had no such advantages, and he didn't need them. He had principle. He actually reported to the recruitment center in Houston where the induction into the army was supposed to take place. But when they called his name, he wouldn't budge. They looked at him and warned him of the consequences if he didn't, but he refused to be intimidated. He didn't dodge the draft. He outright defied it. The U.S. government was using black soldiers largely as cannon fodder, and he refused to be part of that. And obviously Ali was being watched by a lot more people than just the military because the very same day that he defied the draft, he was also stripped of the title. So they were watching him that day and they were just waiting to yank the title from him. 
In addition to having his title pulled, he was also convicted of violating the Selective Services Law. He appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, who unanimously overturned the ridiculous conviction. It had taken three years, but Muhammad Ali was finally able to regain his boxing license and get back in the ring in 1970. TBA once said something that every black person knows to be true. Prison has a way of breaking black people, particularly black men who don't truly know what they're fighting for. When these Negroes get out of prison, they usually can't wait to show how non-threatening they are. That's why white supremacy likes to use that tactic. When they put you in prison, you go in rebellious and you come out docile and submissive. While it's true that Muhammad Ali never went to prison, it's also true that they had done everything to him short of that. He had been without his title for three years. The enemy had been hoping that this would make him more compliant. After all, they had shown that they were fully prepared to take his livelihood away from him. The years that he spent without the title were lean years for him and his family. But rather than back down, Muhammad Ali doubled down. Not only had he not lost his fire in the belly, he was more determined than he had ever been. For his first match back, it was decided that Ali would have to face Jerry Quarry in his return match. Quarry was a big, burly Irishman from California. He was also three years younger than Ali. The thinking was, if Quarry could knock out Ali, then it would be the perfect capstone to their efforts to humiliate him. It would certainly invalidate all of his black pride talk. And even if Quarry didn't win, if he could just manage to go the distance against Ali, well, that would at least show that Ali had lost a step. The same people who had been waiting to strip him of his title mere moments after he defied the draft were now watching and had already written the obituary to his career. This was to be a proxy fight, with Quarry as the establishment's champion and Ali as the champion of justice. But unlike Ali, Quarry hadn't spent three years fighting for his freedom in court. With the white media attacking him every minute of the day and his family in financial peril because of it. Unlike Quarry, Ali had been put through a psychological ringer between the loss of his income and nearly going to prison and being attacked relentlessly as some sort of traitor. But of course, this was the racist society simply doing more name-calling. They had been hurling slurs at Ali from day one, and if they weren't throwing insults at him over the draft, it would have been something else. Well, Ali knew the best way to shut the white supremacists up was to punch them in the mouth, which is exactly what he did. He beat the brakes off of Jerry Quarry, knocking him out in the third round. When they stripped Ali of his title, they didn't expect him to suddenly decide to go join the army, but what they expected him to do was to come begging for his title back, or to otherwise try to make nice with them. He had a family to take care of, and not having the title was an enormous blow to his finances. But Ali didn't start buck dancing or sucking up. He didn't try to make nice with the powers that be, because he meant every word that he had said, and his integrity wouldn't waver just because the enemy was attacking him. When he came back to boxing, he validated that he was exactly who and what he said he was. And it couldn't be denied, though the white media has certainly tried. Sylvester Stallone made Rocky in 1976. The story was in large part based on the Muhammad Ali-Chuck Wepner fight, which had taken place just the year before. Now, in Rocky, Stallone's character, quote-unquote, goes the distance and is still standing at the end of the movie. Well, that movie was and remains a feel-good exercise for the dominant society because the reality was totally different. 
Weppner got washed, and the fight had to be stopped in the 15th round because Weppner could no longer stand due to the beating Ali had laid on him. In Rocky, they made it where both Stallone and Apollo Creed were all beaten up by the end of the movie. Both of them looked like they had been in hell, but in reality, Muhammad Ali looked like he hadn't been in a fight at all. Meanwhile, Weppner looked like a Mack truck had run him over several times. As their consolation prize, the white media had to push a blatant lie that Chuck Weppner had quote-unquote knocked Ali down in the ninth round when it was obvious that he hadn't. Weppner was desperate after the pummeling that Ali was putting on him, so in a panic, he used a dirty boxer's trick of stepping on Ali's foot and pushing him backwards. The boxing world knew what had happened. That's why nobody respected him afterwards. The white media certainly knew that's what happened, but they didn't want to have to admit that Weppner was a dirty fighter who pulled a fast one and still got knocked out. So instead, they were so desperate to claim that they had some sort of victory over Ali, even if it was something meaningless, they instead decided to push this ridiculous lie. To this day, Weppner still lies and falsely claims that he knocked Ali down. He tripped Ali. But the white media needs its fairy tales, so they still run with it. Ali's story is very much the story of black people in this country. If you're black, you actually have to achieve a victory in order to be considered a champion. You actually have to earn it. Nobody's going to shower you with praise or laud your never-say-die attitude or tell anyone that it didn't matter if you lost. You didn't quit, and that's all that mattered. If you're black, that doesn't happen. Talk about taking the bar and putting it on the ground. But when you've been privileged for so long, that's what has to happen. Chuck Weppner says the day that Ali beat him was the greatest day of his life. Kind of reminds me of those people who run around cherishing the Confederacy. You cherish losers because of how hard they fought to lose. I'm sure being in the presence of true greatness was the highlight of the talentless soup can Weppner's career. He should have been honored. Muhammad Ali was everything Weppner wasn't and could never be. And I'll bet he thinks of Ali often with pure envy. But Ali didn't think about Chuck Weppner at all. He never even spoke about him. Unless some white media reporter brought his name up. And even then, Ali didn't have much to say. He didn't consider whipping Weppner to be the greatest day of his life. Weppner was just another soup can to be knocked over. Meanwhile, Muhammad Ali went on from strength to strength, becoming a living legend. We remember Muhammad Ali. Meanwhile, the only people who remember Weppner are people from the dominant society who are engaged in wish-fulfillment fantasies. Without Chuck Weppner, Muhammad Ali would still be remembered as the greatest boxer of all time. Then again, nobody remembers Weppner, even after he fought Muhammad Ali. That tells you everything you need to know about him. And keep in mind, this incident is what the Rocky movie was based on. Well, other people may need that, but we don't. We are a special people. Our heroes don't exist in comic books or sci-fi movies or white media wish-fulfillment fantasies. Our heroes exist in the real world. Rocky Balboa doesn't exist, but Muhammad Ali actually did. Nobody remembers Chuck Weppner, and the few who do consider him a joke. Meanwhile, Ali is the greatest of all time. But of course, the wish-fulfillment fantasy didn't end there. 
in a demonstration of how the dominant society is so psychologically warped in its envy of black people, Salone's Rocky then goes on to basically pretend to have all the victories that Muhammad Ali and other black boxers had had, imitating so much of what Muhammad Ali had done, as if copying the man's poses and trying to do some lunk-headed version of Muhammad Ali's style also means that you could duplicate his greatness. But that's what this country has always done. It vilifies and hates black people and claims to be better than us. And then they turn right around and copy everything that we do. But while greatness is very difficult to copy, the greatest of all time is impossible. In the movies, Rocky wins one for democracy by taking on Russia's champion. But in the real world, it was Joe Lewis who broke the Nazi-touted boxer Max Schmeling in the very first round of their second fight. The Lone Ranger didn't exist, but Bass Reeves did. The other major difference between our heroes and others is that our heroes actually have to win. Other folks simply have to be conscious, and the white media will give them the victory anyway. What the white media does is an old propaganda trick that the Europeans learned from the Romans. How to make your victories sound good and make your defeats sound even better. We don't have to resort to that. Muhammad Ali didn't start out with a complete sense of self, but he found it soon enough, and he understood something that so many of us still have not accepted. If you want to be liked, then just say yes to everyone. But if you want to be respected, then you better start learning to say no. I think that the capstone to Muhammad Ali's life was the fact that he never apologized to white power for anything, not for his words or his deeds. He never apologized for defying their draft. He didn't care who didn't like it. He never felt the need to sugarcoat what he said or to cushion the blow. America would simply have to get used to hearing the truth from a black man who they were too small and too weak to stop. Muhammad Ali stayed true to who he was. Most people don't because they can't. Most black people who encounter adversity from white power immediately knuckle under and start looking for some way to abandon ship or to try to cop a plea and make nice in the hopes the white power will let up on them, and then they go looking for an excuse to justify what they did. But not Muhammad Ali. Just the fact that he never looked for or wanted the white media's approval made it where they had no real control over him. Most black folks, especially those in sports or entertainment, will rein themselves in, watch every word they say, and be meek as field mice, not just because they fear white power taking their money, but mostly because they fear white power not letting them hang around. They want to be liked by the racists who run these networks and newspapers and corporations and be allowed to stay in their presence. White power's control over most of these athletes, actors, and entertainers isn't even tied to the money. Just tied to you won't be allowed to associate with the in crowd anymore. And for them, that's a fate worse than death. And it's sufficient to get them buck dancing, scratching, and shuffling but not Muhammad Ali. He knew that true power comes from within. He also knew that white power was desperate to make him compromise himself. And so long as he defied them and never sought their approval, then he had the power because they desperately wanted him to say that he needed them and he refused because he didn't need them. His model of defiance was an inspiration to his people and a realization to the dominant society he stood against an evil empire, the United States, and he stared the enemy down. 
He made it clear he wasn't selling out. He wasn't looking for a payoff. And everyone else saw this too. And in the process, Muhammad Ali made himself into the most feared of all defiant symbols. A winner who opposes the establishment. In the end, the same white media that had demonized and dogged him for so long, they were the ones who had to throw in the towel. When they failed to destroy their target, when he gains more respect than them, which ain't hard, they then had to pretend that, well, he won us over. That's what happened. He won us over. The praise from the white media has been totally false. But Ali knew it, and he didn't give them a pass. He was bigger than the puny bigots who tried to destroy him. He gave a blueprint on how you go from being a mere man to being a legend. He put on a master class in how to be unapologetically black. And he showed the world that which you cannot defeat, you have no choice but to accept. Ali, boom, Ali. Boombaye. <laughs> oh, man. Give us a call at 215-490-9832. 215-490-9832 as we talk about Dr. King and Muhammad Ali on their trips around the world, their birthdays. And we have some people in the queue, and you know what to do. Hit star twice and give your questions or comments or hit star twice. Get you in. You know, uh, man. Muhammad Ali, my man. Yeah. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> Even when I went to his memorial in Louisville, man, it's tough too because I was flying standby. Man, I had to fly. It was the day before. I had to fly. I had to. I had to go from New Orleans to Dallas to to Atlanta, and I was the last person on that plane. Man, I told that lady. I said, "I'm gonna name. I'm gonna name my first grandchildren after you." I made that flight, got in and late at night, put my stuff out to wear the next day. I had rented a car to drive to Louisville, and, and then bam, I was on my way. And uh, caught up with Mary, got my ticket. And, and, and at his memorial, he wanted religious leaders to speak. I remember seeing a flash, you know how they do the crowd, and of course they had the big screens because it was held in the Yum Center, uh, in a, where the Louisville Cardinals play basketball in, in like an arena, and um, and so they were panning, and you you could see Lonnie and, and the children, you know Layla Ali, you know I I don't remember seeing Portia, you know his third wife I don't remember seeing her or you know Khalil I don't remember seeing her either I seen a flash of Firecon just a flash you know and of course c- c- the consistency one, one, one person I can't stand and that's 
Bill Clinton. I hate the Clintons with a passion. And of course, he he reason why he was there and gave the last eulogy was because he uh, had Muhammad Ali light the torch in 96 in Atlanta, here in Atlanta for the Olympics. And nobody knew what was happening. Somebody thought uh, earlier, later rather, that it might have been Evander Holyfield because he you know, fought in the Olympics as well. But no, it was Muhammad Ali. It's Muhammad Ali who lit the torch. Very emotional. And of course, Bill Clinton was the president at the time. I hate his ass. And so he gave the last eulogy. And of course, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal, of course, had imitated Ali for many years. And Ali called him a little brother. You know. Um, and there was a rabbi from, from Jewish faith. There were indigenous people spoke. You know, of course, Baptists. It was like I say, he wanted different faiths to have their chance to speak at his memorial. And uh, yeah, I saw Larry Holmes and his wife, a number of people, a number of dignitaries or people in sports that walked walked through the crowd. Saw some Nation brothers from Milwaukee. Yeah, the fruit, the FOI. So it was it was it was beautiful, man. It was really beautiful. And um it, you know, I, I there there are some people who come into life and there's no one else who even comes close to duplicating that individual. There will never ever be another Muhammad Ali man who as he came about you know when they stole his bike he wanted to go beat somebody up and he stopped in that gym and and the police officer who was running the gym you know because he wanted to go get the guy and beat him up for stealing his bike he's the one that told him listen you gotta learn how to fight you know and uh, all throughout that history I can understand why Mike Tyson would get emotional. And I agree, man. He, he, he took the latter part of his, his career. But then again, there's guys who took more of a beating than he did, who didn't get Parkinson's. But, you know, when uh, I saw him in Louisville and gave him a hug, I noticed that he had the operation. He was a scar on the back of his neck, a long scar. And he wasn't trembling as much as he had been before you know and of course they did the best they could I guess at that moment to you know to ease that but um, it progressed nonetheless and finally it you know his star twice when to get in this conversation is that something you want to talk about if your memory of Muhammad Ali or your memory of, of Dr. King and you know his star twice or give us a call at 215 490 9832 215 
490-9832. I know this Friday family, um, Brother Paulo with the Moses West Foundation, maybe Moses West will be with him. Hopefully you say it might, that might be possible. I know there's a number of things that are coming down uh, that the Moses West will, Foundation will be able to impact, you know, because there's, there's a lot of places in this world where water is an issue. Oh, Arizona. I saw this piece on Arizona. <laughs> so Scottsdale, Arizona, which is an affluent community, you know, there are some surrounding communities that they would allow to to give them some water, you know, because they needed water. They got to water those golf courses. You got to water those greens. You know, got to look them, got to have them looking just plush. You know, got to water those greens. You know, the areas of, of, of Scottsdale, Arizona. Well, they cut the water off. They cut the water off from who they had been sharing water with or allowing water to have for these communities, these smaller communities to have. And as they showed this one guy, he was, uh, there's some taps that you could, they're, they're a community. And he's taking his truck and he's just going there and filling up, giving people water, go back and forth, you know. See, if they had an atmospheric water generator, A, W, G, from the Moses West Foundation, that wouldn't be an issue. They have water. And even if they had parched land that couldn't grow anything, they could have aquaponics. Yeah. And even on a bigger scale, a large scale, water generates energy, generates electricity. There is no shortage of water. There's a problem with access to water. So we'll be talking with them on Friday. Um, something like that. Supposed to have some, uh, something up next week. Oh, I'll probably remember it. I hope. <laughs> yeah, I hope. Yeah. I'm just thinking about the fights. I never seen Muhammad Ali fight in in, in person. Of course, I would have loved to. You know. I wanted to see the fight with Fraser, the fight of the century. You know, he had, his fights were so grand and so great. They had titles, you know, the fight of the century. Ali Frazier, both undefeated, 1971, you know. Yeah, Madison Square Garden, people came there. It was like a fashion show. Okay. In fact, he, um, uh, the godfather of Harlem, Frank Lucas, <laughs> yeah, in the in, in the scene when uh, Denzel plays him, that that actually happened. Yeah, he was at the fight, decked out in, in the mink. Yeah, Frank Sinatra taking pictures all around, and so forth. Yeah, the rumble in the jungle. Yeah, in in Kinshasa, in the. Democratic Republic of the Congo, then called Zaire, and uh, Mobutu Seki Seko, who was an asshole. <sighs> Man, these cats. <laughs> yeah, but they, 
They put it on. Ali, Bumbaye, Ali kill him. <laughs> yeah. And how they built that up. Like I said, he, he got the, these ideas of promoting the fight from professional wrestling to promote professional wrestling and for those wrestlers to promote themselves like different, doing some crazy stuff. And you, you, I don't know if you watched professional wrestling. I had no idea when I was a teenager. I even went to some wrestling matches, you know. Yeah. From Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George, they, he being him. Uh, his handlers have me sit down in with a mirror to comb his hair and with luscious locks and so forth. Um, his robes look like his robes look like Liberace, if you know Liber, Liberace is. <laughs> uh, yeah. So he he was a promoter of his fights, and he would give cats names, you know, very de- very degrading names, you know, call Joe Frazier the gorilla. You know, in Manila. Yeah. The thriller in Manila. And it was. That was a serious fight. More so than, that was, of course, they both had won previously. And so this was the the tiebreaker. The money fight. And man. Yeah, Yank Dorm stopped the fight. Clearly, Joe Fraser, you know, it's a matter of time. I did go to see him fight uh, Leon Spinks the second time. I was I was at the firehouse the first fight, which was on national TV. It's on ABC. It was on national TV, man. And we caught a fire. I was like, damn. <laughs> well, I'm, you're there to do a job, kid. So, so I, we had a fire, and so by the time we got back, it was the last few rounds, last couple of rounds. And 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 hearing the announcers like Ali loser? Ali lost. And then of course he did lose. I was like, wow. Wow. To Leon Spink. Leon Spinks only had about 10, 15 fights. And he of course he fought um light heavyweight. So does his brother, you know, Michael Spinks. And then of course yeah, there was an immediate rematch some months later. And I, I, I saw that at the uh, stadium in Milwaukee on closed circuit. You know. And I saw his last fight. I don't know. It's called Direct TV. I don't know if you know if you remember Direct TV. Saw his last fight against Trevor Burbitt. And of course, I saw. Th- the sadness of it, Holmes fight. But any fight that I could see Muhammad Ali fight, and of course, I would love to have saw him in the kind of shape that he was in previous, as opposed to how he was in those latter fights, which did a lot of damage to him. Yeah, kind of tough to see somebody who's who you admire, who you love, who you respect, you know, taking that kind of beating. That's why. Mike Tyson in that interview you heard is started to tear up because you know Ali wouldn't quit. He was not a quitter. When he they said one of the worst things that happened to Ali was he found out he could take a punch, and he could. Found out he could take a punch. And it's, 
But boy, he was beautiful. Back in the early days, floating like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. Like when he fought Big Cat Williams. Go on YouTube, brothers and sisters. and Look at some of Ali's fights from back in the day. I mean, just beautiful. Cats couldn't put a glove on him. Yeah. Footwork. Hand speed. He was a middleweight or lightweight fighting as a heavyweight. And they, you know, um, I was pissed because they had a Rocky Marciano Rocky, Rocky Marciano beating him in a uh, computerized fight. They were both there. That, I mean, the fight was filmed in a studio. Them, you know, going through the motions and everything like that. You know, then they put it together. And, and there ain't no way in hell that Rocky Marciano even though he retired undefeated, the only person to do so in the heavyweight division, Money Mayweather retired undefeated in the welterweights, lightweight, whatever. But he couldn't. He couldn't do a. He couldn't do Marciano as small as he was. He'd have been. been I don't know. I can't say whether or not he would have knocked him out or not, but he would have took a pounding. Ali's hand speed, tied him up on the inside. He might not have laid a glove. You you know, Marciano, no doubt, hard, hard punching dude, tried to get on the inside. I remember how how uh, Jersey Joe Walcott looked because I'd seen those films when he knocked him out with that right, beautiful right hand. Bam! You know, Ezra Childs and all these other great, when he knocked out Joe Lewis. But Marciano fought, all those guys, Charles, uh, uh, they were old. They were old fighters. Their, their, their primes were past. And see, he, Mar- Marciano got out, you know, because he's seen Floyd Patterson coming, although Floyd Patterson and him, that would have been a good fight. And, and, and you know, but maybe they got him Sonny Liston, Sonny Liston coming up against Marciano. Yeah, Marciano got out just in time, you know. Yeah. When he got out, uh, Ingermeyer Johansson and Floyd Patterson were on the rise. Liston came in, knocked out Patterson. And, of course, Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston. And that was interesting, brothers and sisters, because everybody was in fear. Just like the same thing with um, uh, George Foreman. Everybody was in fear of Muhammad Ali's life and safety fighting George Foreman. George Foreman knocking cats out. Boom, boom. Same thing with Sonny Liston. But Ali had something for him. You know, the rope of dope. (laughs) The rope of dope. But he took them shots on the hands, on the sides. And he came back in the seventh and knocked him out. Same thing with same thing with Liston. Now, I don't know about the second fight in Lewiston, Maine. They had to fight in Lewiston, Maine, because nobody wanted to give him a a, a license. You know, so a, a world championship fight in Lewiston, Maine. 
And, of course, he knocks him out in the first round. Now, when you look at it and you see, you know, frame by frame, he hits him with a beautiful overhand right. It is. How hard it is, it's hard to, you know, to turn up his flesh. Bam! You know, and that's what drops him. So, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is you got to admire this man. He had many children. He was married. He didn't have any children by Lonnie, the last his last wife, Lonnie, pretty much took care of him. In fact, you know, if you know, Lonnie lived across the street from him. Yeah. Yeah, Lonnie was a, a neighbor. You know, she admired him. As a, she was a girl, a young girl. And she winds up with Muhammad Ali towards and, and caring for him towards the end of his life. You know. In fact, I was on the plane sitting next to Veronica with her fine ass. <laughs> Wish it was Layla. <laughs> but anyway, and I had great conversation with her. Fantastic. I was going going out to LA. Yeah, great conversation with her. In fact, I really didn't know it was her. And I looked at her, looked at her, I said, man. And then of course I asked her. And then we had and then we conversation from that point. But yeah. She had a couple kids for him. And of course, Khalila, Mani Ali and them, so and I'm not sure who Muhammad Ali's son. He wasn't at the funeral. His son was not there. There's some issues. There's some issues. And then of course some documentaries that came out after his passing. You know. One with his brother and, and Cleela, that one. I've probably seen everything that that, that I know of and, and I could have missed something. But as a Muhammad Ali affectionado, <laughs> a man who really admires and respects and loves Muhammad Ali, you know, I try to see everything that they have put out. Maybe there's something they're saying about him that I'm not aware of. And I'm quite sure there is. I don't know every minute detail. But believe me, brothers and sisters, I know enough. I know enough. Because I idolized him. I loved and respected him. I admired him. He's the kind of man who is a real man. He stands up for his people. I'm wavering. He wasn't no... No, uh uh-uh. And you got to admire that. You got to respect that. Only got a few minutes left, family. Let me get in on the conversation. Hit star twice for those. There's still a few of you in the queue. If you want to give us a call at 215-490-9832. If you want to talk about Dr. King, that's another great man. You know, granted, I, I, I did admire Malcolm Moore. Dr. King, and of course there there were perceptions, but I think that uh, piece that uh, Brother Glenn Ford of um, Black Agenda Report did kind of helps un- help us helps us understand Dr. King, and of course what he was up against. You know, both him and Ali vilified man couldn't stand his ass. These crackers could not stand him. <laughs> 
I ain't talking about, you know, the the, the right wing. I ain't talking about uh, the hillbillies and the. No, I'm talking about white people. The one that runs this country. You know. No. They tried all that they could. And even though they did what they did, still. Hey, brother, brother Lusk. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, brother Oshie, and, and to the listening audience. Um, uh, just one little small thing uh, that that kind of stands out for me about Muhammad Ali, and I don't know. Sometimes, from time to time, I like to listen to or read a quotes that certain people have made, and one that stands out uh, with me that. Uh, uh, to quote uh, Muhammad Ali, it goes something like this. It's, it's about repetition. Um, it's the repetition of affirmation that leads to belief. And once that belief becomes a deep conviction, things begin to happen. And, and I'm tying in That's with beautiful. the yeah, Indian system of a daily revolutionary thought. Yes. And, this idea of doing things over and over right. and over and doing it over and over and, and just just kind of wonder what it was like during his training, mm-hmm. right? And times and types of things that he would say while he's doing things and training and doing it over and then becomes a belief and and then deep conviction. I mean, just things yeah. just all of a sudden just start happening. Right. And so that's that stands out. Um, for me about Muhammad Ali that uh, um, something that it keeps me going. Yeah. It keeps me going. It's that repetition of doing it over right. and over and over. To perfection. To, an old, to, to yes. perfection, man. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Right on, Brother Luz. I appreciate Very you, brother. Hope you, hope, you can li- hope you can listen on Friday. We got uh, Brother Moses West of the Moses West Foundation. Talk about sure. what sure. things are going to happen. Yep. All right. Peace, my brother. Peace, brother. Always supportive. Thank you. Brother Paul. Brother Paul, is that you? Good morning. Good afternoon. Uh, um, Baba Ochi. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for what you constantly send. I use both Dr. King and Muhammad Ali today and other things I've used all the time. In fact, you know what I'm going to do, Brother Paul, have a Brother Paul day. These are some of the things that Brother Paul sends to me that makes Clarity that brings clarity to a lot of issues, and I and I thank you for it. And I bless you for it, brother. Peace to you. So what's you happening, know, but, 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 That means so much to me. But you know what means even more? I tell you, and I'll be honest from the bottom of my heart. What means even more? The mere fact that you, as an elder, you as an elder in your elder capacity, actually reciprocate it. You actually acknowledge it. That's a beautiful thing. You're not too proud not to. You know, it's beautiful because. The end of the way for me is quite easy. I, I'm quite familiar with this technology. It's, it's just sort of press of a button, but you know, it makes it just makes me feel that I know there's work to be done. That that's how I see it. There's work to be done, and the mere fact that you acknowledge it, I know that work's getting done, and that's the most important thing for me. And what we are, what I'm trying to do, and what you're trying to do, what Brother Elliot's trying to do, and the rest of the people who is trying to bring awareness to our people. That these people, these great stars like um, Martin Luther King, and you know um, uh, our, our brother Muhammad Ali, 
they, they were stars. They were stars, and they done their part. And they're not dead. You di- you die when no one when nobody remembers your name, Baba Ochi. You die twice. You I die say. a physical death, and then, right. and then you die a spiritual death. Right. Now it's our job, right, to keep these people alive, and we yep. keep them alive. And not just in our memories, and not just in our thoughts, in our words. That's, That's how right. we keep them alive. Yeah, and That's right. you know. The technology is here, Baba Ochi. So nobody, there's nobody, not even the child. I see the other day, I see a three-year-old child, right, pick up a, a tablet, and the way this child was using the tablet, I was shocked. Mm. Now, not even a child has an excuse. So if you're an adult and you and you've got an excuse and you don't know how to tap into the world, then you have to look at yourself in the mirror and 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 wonder what's going on with you. So, Baba Ochi, I I I I, I totally acknowledge your 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 acknowledgement, but in truth. We're just we're just trying to pass on the message. We're just the messengers on that's this right. journey. We're just the messengers. That's it. That's, that's what so we thank are, you. Thank, thank you, you. For, right, for doing your part. And you know, you I know that you could in your retirement you could be doing anything, but you're doing a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful job. Keep there, up the good work. There's no place I'd rather be. Thank you, brother Paul. Bless you, my brother. I'm gonna end the program. Thank you, man. Peace. We end this program like we end all of our programs with the words of Stephen Biko. The most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the minds of the oppressed. This program, African Perspectives, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern, is dedicated and committed to helping to free the African mind. But not just the M-I-N-D, but the M-I-N-E, because under the feet of African people lies all of the resources that everybody wants, think they can't do without, and sure in the hell don't want to pay for. Brothers and sisters, you have a blessed and wonderful day. Shim Hotep means go in peace. Exante Sana means thank you. Bibi Fahorier. Bibi Fahorier means our victorious destiny. Brothers and sisters, we will be victorious. You have a blessed and wonderful day. Hope to see you on Friday. <laughs>